everyone. This is Melissa from Horror Geek Life and welcome to the Horror Geek Podcast. So with me again on this episode is Matt. Matt's a comic collector and horror fan who is also part of the Peak Buzz podcast currently found on YouTube. Hi, Matt. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me back. And I'm really excited to talk about tonight's subject. I wanted you to come back on this follow-up episode because it kind of ties back to the first. And last week, for anyone who hasn't yet listened, which we hope you do go back and listen, but we talked about part three horror sequels that we love. And on tonight's episode, our main topic is going to be 80s horror movies that never got a sequel, even though they're all kind of awesome. And that's kind of rare in the horror genre. Yeah, there's a few on here that definitely due to uh, the box office numbers didn't get sequels. I think that's the main reason. Yeah, I could definitely see some of these being a franchise. You know, after we talk about the movies tonight, I think we should talk about that. If we had to pick one movie off of our list that we would have wanted to see a sequel get made of, what would it have been? So we'll talk about that after and maybe even our listeners can chime in on social media. Once this episode goes live, let us know what they would like to see get made. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So before we dive into the news this week, I want to ask in 2021, and it doesn't have to be released this year, but what is a non-horror? Because, you know, we talk a lot about horror here, but we do talk about more than just horror because it literally is horror and geek and kind of we kind of throw a lot of other things in there. But what is a first time watch for you this year that you just love? Well, thanks to uh, you dropping some knowledge my direction. I was informed of a little film called uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii, written and directed by Andy Sedaris. I won't go too far into the synopsis because I'd really love to do our own episode on this film, but I can't thank you enough for showing me this film. Okay, it is one of the best action films ever made. And I am just going to say that and I'm not even exaggerating. Yeah, it it would actually be a really fun one to talk about. Uh, The first few of Andy's films would actually be great to discuss on a future episode because they are just amazing. I'm really glad that you watched it and I'm really glad that you enjoyed it because I would be really sad if someone watched that and said, eh, (laughs) I'd be like, I don't know if I could be friends with you anymore. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is now like one of my favorite films, like hands down. It's so just lighthearted and fun and goofy. One of those films that I can turn on anytime and watch. There's a lot of uh, lady parts. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of action. There's a lot of explosions for no real reason. And there's even a toxic snake that comes out of a toilet so yes yes definite highlight (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) i was trying to think of what my highlight would be and i really think it would have to be birds of prey i know it was released in 2020 but i just saw it a few months back and i've already rewatched it a couple of times it is just such a funny light-hearted fun movie agreed harley quinn and her sandwich like (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love that the film pretty much revolves around her getting her breakfast sandwich i did see suicide squad recently i absolutely loved it i think birds of prey still kind of comes a little bit above suicide squad for me but suicide squad is pretty much up there and i was surprised because the first one i just never wanted to revisit um (laughs) And I was really hoping that this one would, you know, turn that around. And oh my God, I had 
tears from laughing so hard. And uh, the same thing with Birds of Prey. So both are huge highlights. I'd have to say I liked Suicide Squad a little bit more. And I'm actually not a big DC person in general. So these are the only two DC films I've watched. But both were were definitely enjoyable. I liked both of them a lot more than I thought that I was going to. Well, I will say, if you haven't seen the rest of the DC films, I don't know if it was a good idea to start with the two huge highlights of the <laughs> of the universe and then start working your way through because you will definitely not come close to hitting the enjoyment level that you did on these two films. Some of them are worth watching. I, I have a couple of films in there that I like to watch and um, definitely not Marvel, you know, but yeah. So we're going to jump into news here, and we're actually going to start with some serious news. So this week, actor, writer, comedian, one of the funniest men has passed away. Norm MacDonald passed away, and apparently he was actually battling leukemia for almost a decade, and he didn't want people outside of his inner circle to know because he didn't want people's perception of him to change. And so it kind of came as a huge surprise for a lot of fans and probably colleagues, friends. I am a huge fan of Dirty Work. I love that movie. <laughs> I love Bob Saget yes. too. But that movie is just hilarious. And I used to watch that in The Pest. A great double feature. Yes. And of course, you know, on Saturday Night Live, uh, I loved him on Weekend Update. And I'm seeing a lot of people say the same thing. I feel like he is someone who helped shape my sense of humor from an early age. I love that deadpan style. Just like you, I'm a big fan of Dirty Work, his years on SNL. I've seen a lot of videos of him on like late night TV where he will just tear into guests and not have to be super vulgar, even though some of it definitely was. But most of the time he would keep it lighthearted enough to where they'd be able to air it and it would still cut you just as bad as if he went a little darker with it. He would always know how to get his point across to the audience at an appropriate level. Like he was kind of a master at that and rest in peace turn ferguson we definitely lost a very very talented and funny guy yeah i've seen a lot of love and support thrown his way so that's always a great thing to see yes it's hard to start this new segment off with such sad news but it's also great to kind of think about how many laughs we had and will have still absolutely so for the rest of the news, we actually have had a lot of gaming news this week, and I just wanted to touch on a couple of articles that we posted on Horror Geek Life and covered. The first is that Tony Todd is going to voice Venom in Marvel's Spider-Man 2. Now, I am Xbox and PC. I have not played Marvel's Spider-Man, and I'm very sad about that, and I'm even sadder that I won't be able to play Marvel's Spider-Man 2 because I really want to play this. I actually have played the Spider-Man game. I did not play the Miles Morales one yet, which I think that's the same universe. So technically this should be like 2.5 or something like that. But I did love that they're incorporating both Peter and Miles into this one. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of kind of co-oping the characters. And I'm a huge Tony Todd fan. I have been since watching Candyman on pay-per-view as a child. His voice is, is perfectly suited for a darker character like Venom. 
one really awesome thing that I love about Tony Todd is that if you follow him on Twitter, he is so engaging with his fans. If you go on Twitter and you tweet something at him, more than likely you are going to get some type of interaction or response, even though he has done so much. I mean, just even outside of horror, he is still that person that connects with his fans and you just have to love him for that. Also announced by the game dev, which is Insomniac Games during this showcase that they did for PlayStation is that they are making Marvel's Wolverine. And I don't know if you've seen the teaser yet, Matt. I have. The teaser gave me chills. His design is perfect with the flannel, him sitting at a bar by himself with a beer and just a straight massacre behind him. I'm really excited for this game. I'm hoping it's kind of like Spider-Man, like the gameplay. It looks like they've at least got the design right. Yeah, it does. And Spider-Man 2 is supposed to come out in 2023 at some point. And we know that Wolverine will come out after Spider-Man 2. So it has not been confirmed for 2023, but I kind of feel like it's going to be the year after just because Spider-Man 2 is such a huge undertaking that they are probably going to space that out a little bit. But I guess we'll see. The other bit of news in this part made me sad is that Dying Light 2 Stay Human has been delayed until February 4th, 2022, and it was supposed to come out December 7th. I am a huge fan of Dying Light. I have so many hours in the first one. I love it in co-op. It's one of my favorites to play with friends, but then also with the solo campaign, I've played through it twice now. I've really been looking forward to Dying Light 2. Right now, it is in playtesting, though. Techland has also said that there is some exciting news coming out later this month about the game. So we'll see what they have there. And when it does release, it is going to come to PC, PlayStation, and Xbox. So I am included on this one. The last bit of news tonight is actually not gaming, but it is about Elvira, who we all love, right? Yes. So she is finally coming to Shudder. Joe Bob Briggs has been on Shudder for quite a while now. Everyone has said, where's Elvira? Why isn't Elvira on Shudder? And I had heard that she had expressed interest in Shudder, but I, I don't know what happened with that. So I'm really excited that she's actually going to get a one night movie marathon and it's taking place on September 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern in the US and Canada after it premieres two days after it'll go on demand on their app. It is now I have to read this because I'm afraid I'm going to leave one of these words out. It is Elvira's 40th anniversary. Very scary, very special, special. And again, that is coming to Shudder and it's part of their 61 days of Halloween lineup. And I have a theory. And my theory, I hope it's correct, is that they are testing Elvira to see what her reach is going to be in her market. And maybe if a lot of people tune in for this and check it out when it gets on demand, that we will see more Elvira on Shudder. I thought the exact same thing. And I really hope that she kind of gets her own hosting show like she did back in the day. I'm definitely going to be tuning in and supporting any way I can. The films that she's going to be showing are Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, which is an all-time favorite. It's going to be awesome to see her hosting that one. House on Haunted Hill, the original, the classic, Vincent Price. The City of the Dead and Messiah of Evil. What a great lineup. It is. So getting into our main topic is horror movies that never had a sequel. 
let's go ahead and dive in here to our list. And the first one is Motel Hell, which released in 1980. And the director on that is Kevin Connor. Kevin these days, it seems, which I did not know this, it seems he actually works on holiday Hallmark type, you know, made for TV movies. The Christmas Kiss, The Christmas Kiss Part 2, uh, but he has a lot under his belt in recent years. So good for him for still working. And I guess he found his new niche, which was not Motel Hell type movies. Well, he found my niche because I love the Hallmark Channel and I revisit those films specifically multiple times a year. As you can see, I've got uh, my signed by the cast and crew poster in the background here. We're on Zoom, and so I can see that of the Christmas kiss, too. Who would have known that you're such a big fan? I love the Christmas kisses. So the movie stars Rory Calhoun as Vincent Smith, and he is Farmer Vincent. And Farmer Vincent, along with his sister, have Motel Hello, where the O flickers, <laughs> making it Motel Hell, which is exactly what it is. They have a little side business, though, of making smoked meats, and it's very popular in their county. A lot of people are fans. It happens to be people. So they go out and they trap people going down the highway, passing through, uh, patrons at the motel, and they make them part of their smoked meat process. They really don't see a difference between people and animals. It's kind of all the same to them because what is the famous line? It takes all kinds of critters. To make Farmer Vincent's fritters. You got it. Meat's meat and a man's gotta eat. <laughs> so based on those two amazing quotes uh, is pretty much the premise of this whole movie and not only are they psycho killers who turn people into smoked meat for the masses but their brother is a dumb bumbling naive sheriff of the town he's also super creepy he is super creepy. <laughs> he sure is. I think everybody in this movie it has a level of insanity or creepiness. I have to really give a shout out to Nancy Parsons in this, RIP, who played Sister Ida. She is just such a great character. She goes from this very childlike, whimsical kind of personality to really, really scary in two seconds. I mean, she just witches it. You see it multiple times in the film and she just nails it every time. You do. And she gets so much glee. I mean, they both do, both her and Vincent. They get so much glee out of what they do. They have their secret garden where the people that they end up keeping go into this garden and are buried neck deep. Their vocal cords are cut. <laughs> and <laughs> which, uh, when they show the gruesome injury from that, it gets me every single time. But they funnel feed them to fatten them up. And once they're ready, they harvest them. It seems like a horrible process that actually seems really more difficult than it should be, but it works for them, I guess. They take pride in their work, so they definitely seem to get enjoyment of dragging bodies all over the place. They sure do. They just get the rope, they put it around their necks, and <laughs> they pull them yeah. up like they pull them up like beets out of the ground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um <laughs> 
this film, when it first came out, it was really marketed as a straight up horror film. And as anyone who has seen it knows, it is very much not that. I think that people kind of had an idea of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre-ish type movie. And it's just way zanier and funnier than that. I think the end, though, is, is really the only horror scene you get. It is, and it is the best. It is. To have Farmer Vincent and his sheriff brother fighting, they have dueling chainsaws, which yes. is just amazing. Everyone loves a dueling chainsaw battle. Yes. And, you know, if you go and read about this film a little bit more, that whole scene was a nightmare <laughs> to actually film. I bet it was. Yes, you're dueling chainsaws, but for some reason in the slaughterhouse is where this takes place. And for some reason, it seems so out of character to me, but Farmer Vincent comes in with a giant pig carcass head on his head. And I don't know why. I don't know why either, but I don't know how they didn't turn that look into a franchise. I like it better than, I like the, the pig head design better than Leatherface. Like, it's so much creepier to me. I think it works for the first film, seeing it so little, but they definitely could have expanded just that look alone into a franchise, in my opinion. So first, at the very end, when Farmer Vincent is dying, the sad music is playing and he's talking to his brother and you think that he's about to confess, you know, his crimes and his sins to his brother in a very heartful way and, and show that his remorse. And instead, he tells his brother that he's a hypocrite because he actually did use preservatives in his meat. And <laughs> <laughs> he is so regretful, though. It is it's masterfully done by Rory Calhoun. During that scene, too, he tells his brother, who, you know, is innocent of all these crimes. He didn't know any of it was going on, but he tells his brother that he's leaving him the secret garden, which is the garden of people and the motel. And it could have continued, though, with Bruce. I think that the pighead would have, like, really been upped in its usage in right. these sequels. I've seen way worse transitions into a sequel than the brother snapping over the end of the first movie and becoming Pighead. <laughs> pighead. <laughs> yeah. Motel Hell 2 uh, Pighead. I think that, right. that works. So let's move on to our second film, and that is The Burning in 1981. The director on that one is Tony Malam. Uh, this movie is inspired by New York's Cropsy Boogeyman urban legend. Now, this one has been called a Friday the 13th ripoff. I hear that all the time. Yes. And, you know, it actually came out really, really close to Friday the 13th Part 2. It should be noted that it was actually written before Friday the 13th and registered before Friday the 13th was conceived. So it is actually not a ripoff. I think the burning is just incredibly, incredibly solid. You get the Tom Savini effects which are, you know, it's Savini, the master, always solid. Uh, he actually turned down Friday, too, because he was flabbergasted that Jason was coming back into the film and wanted nothing to do with it for the most part. You get a lot of first-time showings from uh, some pretty memorable actors, Jason Alexander from Seinfeld fame, Holly Hunter, and my favorite, Fisher Stevens. I love Short Circuit so much. <laughs> you know what's really funny is with Jason Alexander, how does he already look 40? I know. He does not change at all 
age-wise from this film to Seinfeld other than he has less hair. It is so weird. And the other question here is the most important question that you should ask yourself when you're watching The Burning. Who were these summer camps made for? Because all of these kids range from like 14 to 34. And <laughs> I do not understand what age range this summer camp is meant for. <laughs> That's a very good observation. One thing I will say, and maybe diversifying age had something to do with it because there's a lot of dialogue between you know the campers daily routine and i find this cast of campers more interesting and enjoyable to watch in their downtime than any other camp slasher that i've seen the characters are just really enjoyable in this one there's a couple characters that uh, don't fit that description. For the most part, this group of characters is really enjoyable, very likable. You feel like you're actually at the summer camp. They're authentic. They are. Yes. The scene where they are in the canoes and there's the banjo music playing and it's kind of a happier scene. You know, the first time I saw that, I remember thinking, oh, here it comes, here it comes. Someone's about to get slaughtered. And then they just keep having fun. And I thought, that's weird. <laughs> why are they all alive? Like, why is this, you know, happy? And once that scene ends, you think that was a nice scene. Like, it was just a nice, <laughs> wholesome scene in the middle of this movie. And the burning is quality. It really mm -hmm. is a quality camp slasher. I do agree. I would have to say that my favorite kill is actually a five person kill. And that is the raft scene. It is just unfreaking real. The sheer violence that happens during this scene. So the camp's canoes are gone and these five campers all get on a raft and they're just going on the water looking for the canoes. They happen to see one of the canoes, so they go over to it thinking that there's no one in it just to get it and take it back to camp. And he jumps out of the canoe and he has his garden shears. It is just that classic, you know, silhouette that you've seen in the posters, you've seen on the cover art. And oh my God, he goes to town on these five people. We're talking throat slit, forehead slit fingers chopped off with blood and it actually sounds kind of cheesy but it's not that's what's so terrifying about it this is also my favorite kill i'm i'm pretty sure anyone that has seen this film this is going to be the highlight kill wise but it is savini just doing what he does best when he cuts fisher stevens fingers off there's just blood everywhere and that forehead slit i've never seen that done ever again and i don't think it could be done again as well uh there's like this little flap of skin that you see hanging there and it's, it's gruesome and this scene just stays with you for the rest of the film it's super haunting but another little interesting thing that i don't think i've ever seen in another movie you get the final boy instead of the final girl not only do you get a final boy, but he is kind of a twerpy creep. Yeah, very pervy. They would not have made a, back then at that point, they would not have made a final girl with the same type of actions and morals as he had. But they do. They have a final boy and he is aided by a final man. I don't know. Yeah, you get two final boys. 
Next on the list is The Prowler, 1981, directed by Joseph Zito, who also did Friday 13th, the final chapter. And it was because of this movie that he got the final chapter and deservedly so. This was also released as Rosemary's Killer and The Pitchfork of Death, which would be a really awesome metal band name, by the way. Yes. We talked about Tom Savini just a second ago, and we also talked about Tom Savini in the first episode with Day of the Dead. Honestly, though, this is my favorite Tom Savini FX work. It is amazing because the fact that you get such an up-close shot on these kills, you have the pitchfork going into the stomach, and it looks so real. If you get the the Blu-ray, the beautiful Blu-ray that I'm a proud owner of, and you watch it on a big TV, and you watch that scene of the pitchfork going into the woman's stomach in the, the shower, it just looks so real. I'm a big fan of all of Savini's work. Certain kills are better than others, in my opinion, but that pitchfork scene in the shower gotta be at least top three all time from Savini. It is, I still don't know how he did it. Not only that one, but what about the knife in the head? The guy's eyes just go white. I have never seen that before. Yeah. It was so well done. And, you know, the killer comes up and he takes this giant knife and he just stabs this man in the top of the head. The eyes go in the back of his skull. They're white. And, oh, man. And it just lingers. Also, the very end when, you know, it's again, I mean, Savini was not scared of these close up shots. Mm-mm. The killer has a shotgun right up to his head. It goes off and it does not turn away as his entire head is just blown to pieces. I believe he used apple cores and condoms filled with blood. It looks glorious when that dude's head erupts. <laughs> It really does. And of course, that kind of creates a problem for sequels when they die, like really, really die. You know, like you can't come back from your head in a billion different pieces or with Cropsy, you can't come back after an axe is in your forehead and then you're burned to a crisp. Again. Again. Yes. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Um, so I could see the difficulty in, in making this one a sequel, and I don't think it needed a sequel. And And just to be clear, the movies on my list aren't films that I think should have had a sequel. They just didn't. And this is one that I'm kind of glad never got that because it's perfect the way it is. And don't ever remake it, people. Don't do it. Yes, agreed. Glad it's a one and done. And I hope they never try to remake this one either. I do love that you get Lawrence Tierney as Major Chatham. He played Joe Cabot in Reservoir Dogs. I was a big fan of Reservoir Dogs, so seeing him in this role was pretty sweet. So let's move on to the next one, which is Pieces in 1982. There are two words for this one. Mommy Issues. Very, very much so. In the very beginning, there's a little boy and he is putting together a pornographic jigsaw puzzle. His mom interrupts him, abuses him. She reacts in a very, very strong way. And he murders her for that. With an axe. With an axe and gets away with it because he's just a small child. And yeah, so he then goes on to want to create a jigsaw puzzle using his mom's clothing and shoes. And the body parts of teenage girls. Yes, uh, which he finds on a college campus. 
So, as I said, mommy issues, <laughs> sexually <laughs> repressed. I mean, it's just kind of, you can analyze this one for a couple of days here. Uh, but the director on this one is J.P. Simone, who actually gave me one of my favorite slugs. Slugs. I'm a huge eco horror fan. And that's one of my favorites in the subgenre. So, yes. Now, I do have to say that with this one, the director did express interest in a sequel at one point and a copyright for the treatment of pieces two and a screenplay did show up in records. So, it was on someone's mind at some point, but we obviously never saw it happen. This is one of those where I, I don't really see how they'd segue into a sequel so i'm actually okay with this one not going any further i did wonder what that would look like you know obviously you can always go copycat or you can go totally different standalone story or maybe the frankenstein girl at the end who grabs the guy's uh member maybe she's the new killer i don't know yeah there's a few directions but they're all pretty hokey so the thing with this one is there are a lot of scenes that just makes no sense and they don't need to be there. They need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I love this film so much because it is pure trash at its best. Okay. One thing I've always wondered is what is going on with the Kung Fu guy? So this woman is walking, she's walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden she's attacked by a man doing Kung Fu. Well, not really attacked, I guess he didn't lay hands, uh, but he was jumping all around her like he was going to attack her and she takes out her gun and then it's just kind of this happy ending where he just kind of walks away and I don't know what happened. I don't understand it. <laughs> From what I've uh, gathered about the situation is the director found out that there was a Bruce Lee impersonator who goes by Bruce Lee with one E instead of two. And he was near the set or on the set some for some reason. And the director wanted to uh, pan this film out to full movie length. So he just persuaded the guy to do the scene for no reason. And it is my favorite scene in the movie just because of how ridiculous it is. There's no point to it whatsoever. The dialogue is just so stereotypical. His reason for almost attacking this random woman for no reason is because of bad sushi. <laughs> <laughs> And then you have the other kid come up and say that it's his Kung Fu teacher. Like, <laughs> it's so great. And then, yeah, like you said, he just walks away like he didn't just almost assault a woman for no reason. So the whole scene is just so bad in the best way. <laughs> And I also wanted to mention, kind of going back to the puzzle, so there's this pornographic puzzle, which uh, the director has said that he still owns that today. It was printed and put out by Messed Up Puzzles. Messed Up Puzzles has really cool puzzles, and they did remake this one. I looked, it was sold for $30, and they are temporarily out of stock. Oh, and they also do have a hard ticket to Hawaii puzzle, by the way, but yes. Thank you for that little tidbit. I will be looking into that. Speaking of that scene, uh, I know Eli Roth is a very big supporter of this film. I've seen him talk about it numerous times. The, the pancake scene from Cabin Fever with the little Kung Fu kid, there's just no way that that wasn't a nod to the karate scene. Like it, it had to have been a little love letter to this film. 
I think that this has to be the oddest movie <laughs> on our list and it's in the best way and it's a really fun watch. If I had to pick my favorite kill from this one, it would be the waterbed kill. So uh, this very naked woman is killed on a waterbed and um, it's actually a really drawn out kill and it's pretty gruesome. It is. He stabs the waterbed, so more water comes out, and then it's just blood red as she bleeds into the waterbed. It is a very good kill. Isn't the waterbed just like sitting in the middle of like a gym? Yes. Like just very oddly placed. As far as favorite kills go, it's got to be right at the beginning with the chainsaw decapitation. When the decapitation happens, this woman's head just flips like a million times through the air. And this just huge fountain of neon red blood is just everywhere. In the middle of the day, in the middle of a college campus, not, you know, no one would see this happen. The silhouette of the killer is the sunshine shining in the background it's, it's a great sh it's one of the only good shots in this movie but yeah I, I love that kill it's a good one and that blood man it just does i mean they must have just put like a huge hose right there full of blood because it just does not stop <laughs> <laughs> it's just a geyser yes yes Speaking of mommy issues and sexually repressed issues, brings us to our next film. And that one is Blood Rage 1987. This was directed by John Grismere, and this was his last credit. It was actually his second film credit, and it was his last. So this one is really interesting because it's a Thanksgiving-themed horror film. Mm-hmm. You know, until the last couple of years, people never talked about this film. And I think now every single Thanksgiving, you start seeing a lot of things about it on social media because people have just embraced it for, I mean, really the first time that I can remember. Yeah. Also, there's not really a good amount of Thanksgiving themed horror. So why do you think then it took so long to really become popular? I'm not really sure, to be honest. Definitely has flown under the radar for a long, long time. I'm not the hugest fan of this film. It's okay. Like, I don't hate it. And I do love that it's actually Thanksgiving themed because we don't get enough of those. It's one of those more mediocre 80s slashers, in my opinion. I'm really surprised because I would think that this one would be right up your alley with super cheesy 80s horror. And then you also like the holiday themed horror, but I like this one. I enjoy it. I really like the mom, Maddie. <laughs> She's the best part. She really Especially is. when she uh, overindulges on the, uh, the Thanksgiving wine. Yes. Every Thanksgiving now, I share a picture of her right before Thanksgiving telling my family and friends that this is going to be me for the next week. Just <laughs> in, in front of the refrigerator, some wine in hand, a turkey leg in the other hand, and that's it. So but yeah, I, I do like this one, you know, and, and I mentioned the mommy's issues and the sexual issues, and it all comes from a boy really having issues with his mom uh, having sex and he decides to murder someone else at a drive-in actually he as a young boy he murders a teenager having sex and then he frames his twin brother for it and then his murderous rage comes back years later when she gets engaged because you know it's his mom 
So it's, <laughs> it's just a creepy relationship that the two have. What's fun is the next movie, we're actually going to talk a lot about Sam and Ted Raimi. Mm-hmm. In this one, Ted Raimi actually had a little part at the drive-in, and he was selling condoms at the drive-in. Out of his jacket, no less. That's right. I think if this one were to have a sequel, you can kind of figure out what that would be about. Because at the end, one of the twin brothers, the one that was bad, you know, he ends up dying. And the other twin brother is just left kind of shocked. And so obviously it would be the twin because he was in a mental asylum for almost his whole life. And, you know, that kind of made you crazy. So, yes, for sure. The effects in this film were really well done by Ed French, who would later go on to do Creepshow 2. He did the effects for Sleepaway Camp, The Stuff, which is, uh, I love that film so much. And also terminator 2 so he pretty much made a bit pretty big name for himself in the uh, special effects world so if you want to see some early pre-terminator 2 action this film's a good one to watch with the next movie it kind of actually falls into one of those films that i didn't see until the last few years and once i watched it finally i didn't even know it existed and then once i finally watched it i was really mad that it took me so long to see it because it was so good but that is the intruder which came out in 1989 the director on this is scott spiegel this director also gave us hostel part three and from <laughs> and from dust till dawn too and because he gave us the intruder we're going to forgive him for hostile three yes this is one of my all-time favorites so it takes place in a grocery store for some reason i really like grocery store settings i don't know yes. why and it's actually filmed in a grocery store. So you actually get that feeling of it being closed in. And it takes place overnight with the night crew. You know, the, the store's closing and they have to do markdowns. And so they're having to work all night long. And so you really feel completely trapped and closed in the store, even though it's, you know, it's large and there's a large back area and things like that. It's still kind of claustrophobic at the same time. The director, we mentioned Ted Raimi, um, our favorite condom salesman. Um, <laughs> He is in this film along with Sam Raimi and along with Bruce Campbell, but he grew up with them. You can tell they had so much fun on this film. Yes. Most noticeably to me is it's almost as if uh, Sam was definitely in his ear with some of the shots of the film because there's some very Sam Raimi shots, the shopping cart through the phone, just a lot of really interesting ideas that you are not gonna see anywhere else. As far as the grocery store setting, it is amazing. And I think that it needs to be done a lot more in horror. Let's talk about the effects because holy cow, (laughs) like they're so good. the effects and we actually mentioned these guys in the first episode on a film but you have howard berger uh, robert kurtzman greg nicotero sean rogers and greg nicotero actually has a very small bit part in the film as well i started writing down my favorite kills i ended up with four different kills because i could not pick one i had to narrow mine down too and i couldn't choose between two I'll name both of them, even though I'm sure both of them will be on your list. Tell me your two. Let's see. Is the trash compactor? Yes, that one's on my list. And the meat saw. Yes. So seeing a dude's head crushed 
by this trash compactor. Oh man. And half of his head, not his whole yes. head, but half, I think like pretty much at the nose up and it's just crushed with all of this weight. Oh my God. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the little extra splat you get at the end is just glorious. Yes. Yes. And then the other one was as well, you know, you see this meat saw thing and you know, you know that they're going to use it, even yep. though they show it and then they move away and go into a different room. You're like, mm -mm, I know you're going to go back to that. And of <laughs> yes. course it does. And it does not disappoint. They do it very slow from like the top down to where you're staring directly at the front of this man's face. And when you see the saw get into his gums and his teeth kind of jiggling a little bit as the closer the blade gets to his teeth, it is insane how just cringy it is. The other two on my list, I had to add them was Ted Raimi. Mm -hmm. I really like his kilt. And he's just his own little world, cutting up his watermelons and using his knife in this very dramatic way to cut up produce for some reason. So it's only appropriate that he ends up with a giant knife straight in the top of his head, kind of the exact same thing that happened with the Prowler. After that happens, it's like his lip is quivering and it just shows his face for a minute. And then he falls and you see the sign that says that knives are sharp. And so safety first. <laughs> and I really like that they did that because with his kill, they show that sign. And then with Sam Raimi's kill, which is the other one on my list, mm -hmm. I really enjoy, I love Sam Raimi, but I really enjoyed seeing him get put on a meat hook. Yes. And then it cuts away from his death and it goes straight to a sign that says meats. <laughs> the transition is really clever in, in the shots. And so I really like those four. If I had to pick one, it would definitely be the head crush. Yeah. Last time you mentioned that downer endings, they don't really bother you, that sometimes you're kind of a fan. Yes. In this one, you expect it to resolve a certain way. And instead, it is completely unresolved. And it's not that happy of an ending, really. It is indeed an unhappy ending. I'm a huge fan of, first off, how absurd the ending is, and just the whole reason why this person is murdering people in the first place is absurd. When the tables turn at the end, I was a very big fan. The murderer is killing because the store is going under and he's upset about it. He was the manager and he's upset and so he kills his employees. I don't know. Yeah. But that's the story. And when the two police officers come, one of them being Bruce Campbell, which is kind of funny that they put his name like first and foremost in casting when he is in the last 30 seconds of this movie. Yeah, you could blink and miss him easily. Absolutely. And so at the end, he ends up playing victim and blaming it on the last survivor of that crew and then her ex-boyfriend. After she figures out that this man is placing the blame on her, she just screams on the top of her lungs. <laughs> you know, but it, to be fair, she just went through like a house of horrors, right? She is up there. She has her bleach water and she's sanitizing the conveyor belt and register for a really long time. Yes. <laughs> and she doesn't realize that all over the grocery store, all of her colleagues are getting brutally murdered. And their body parts are just ending up everywhere. So there's a hand in the lobster tank. There's an eyeball in the olive jar. There's feet in the bathroom. You know, she runs into body piece after body piece, body after body. 
just in these horrific ways. And she's all by herself running from like one death scene to another. So I guess the scream is a little justified because I would be freaking out too. (laughs) It's so funny to me that she doesn't even scream like no or anything. She just, (laughs) ah, (laughs) and then in. So obviously this one could have easily, I'm not saying they should have, I'm very glad they did it, but it could have easily been a sequel with this deranged grocery store man (laughs) (laughs) continuing on. I don't know. I'm just crazy about this store. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. So Matt, out of these films, which one would you have wanted to see a sequel of? I was originally going to go with Intruder just because I would like to see it. Maybe even like a remake, not necessarily a sequel. I'd just like to see the grocery store setting updated a little bit. And if you could get Nicotero and the crew back on effects, I would sign up in a heartbeat. But I'm going to go with Motel Hell. I know the original script was supposed to be more violent, more of an actual slasher than it turned out to be. If they went in a darker direction with that pig head design, I'd be there in a second. So that's going to be my choice. At first, when I thought about this question, I thought, I want to say the burning, but I'm not going to say the burning, but I'm going to say the burning. (laughs) 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 I have to. And the reason is I started thinking through what future sequels would be because of Friday the 13th, I really like the first few. I mean, I like the whole series. Don't get me wrong. I love the whole series, but I really liked the, the camp counselor slasher, the camp setting. And of course, Friday the 13th gravitates away from that and goes off the crazy deep end. You know, he ends up in space and fighting Freddy and everything. I would have loved to see a true camp slasher series but a serious one because we also have sleepaway camp but that one that that series is very silly and zany but i would love to see a summer camp slasher series and this could have done it at the very end they do set it up telling the story of cropsy around a campfire and the counselor is telling them you know he's still here he can still see you he's still gonna kill you And so I kind of think that it would have had to turn into a legend, but maybe it's just carried out by other people. I'm not really sure, but it could have been done. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Michael Myers burnt to a crisp and he's back just fine. So um, we can definitely bring Cropsy back from anything. Yes. Okay, well, that wraps up this episode. And thank you, Matt, for joining once again. It was always fun talking horror movies with you, sequel or no sequel. (laughs) And thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode of the Horror Geek Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe if you enjoyed our show and connect with us on social media at Horror Geek Life. And I'm Horror Geek Mel on Instagram. You can find Pink Buzz on YouTube under Graphic Vandalism. Until next week. (laughs) 